Today is the first day of Sukkot, the Feast of Booths. What does the Bible have to say about this festival? Stay with me, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Hello, friends. Welcome to Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, Moody Radio's Bible study across America. I'm Michael Rydelnik, academic dean and professor of Jewish studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute. I'm so glad to be sitting around the radio kitchen table with you, taking your questions about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life. If you have a question you'd like to call, the phone number here is 877-548-3675. That's 877-548-3675. Trisha McMillan is our producer. Handling all things technical is Courtney Young. Well, now go get your cup of coffee and open your Bible because we're about to study the scriptures together. But before we get to your questions, let's talk about Sukkot, the festival of booths. Some people call it tabernacles. You know, growing up in Brooklyn, New York, it's not like I or my Jewish neighbors were heavily involved in camping. The only time we ever seemed to think about staying in something close to a tent was every fall when we celebrated the festival of Sukkot or the Feast of Booths. Maybe that's why God ordained this holy day in the Torah, in the, in the law, so we'd have an annual camping festival. Well, not really. There were important lessons for Israel in this festival, and that's why God ordained it. So let's take a look at it. Let's start with the biblical roots of Sukkot. You can learn a little bit about Sukkot in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. There it's got the, all the festivals of Israel, and beginning with Sabbath and then all the festivals. But in verse 33, it begins to talk about Sukkot. Here's what it says. Tell the Israelites, the festival of booths to the Lord begins on the 15th day of the seventh month, and continues for seven days. This is to be a sacred assembly on the first day. You're not to do any daily work. You're to present a fire offering to the Lord for seven days. On the eighth day, you're to hold a sacred assembly and present a fire offering to the Lord. It is a solemn gathering. You're not to do any daily work. And then it goes on to talk about the offerings and sacrifices. It says in verse 39, you are to celebrate the Lord's festival on the 15th day of the seventh month for seven days. And here's the very first aspect of Sukkot. It is designed, the festival of booths is designed as an agricultural festival. It's called Chag Ha'asif the Feast of Ingathering. If you look at verse 39, it says, after you have gathered in the produce of the land, there will be a complete rest on the first day and a complete rest on the eighth day. So what it's saying is it's a harvest festival. When you've gathered in all the produce of the land in the fall, you are to celebrate in booths and take a week long with an eighth day added festival for the Lord. By the way, this is the basis of what the pilgrims did when they established Thanksgiving back in the 17th century. The second aspect of Sukkot is that it is a historical festival. It's called Chag HaSukkot, the Feast of Booths, 
and it remembers God's provision in the wilderness. If you look at verses 42 and 43 of Leviticus 23, it says, you are to live in booths for seven days. All the native born of Israel must live in booths so that your generations may know that I made the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, this is significant because what the, God didn't just declare that the Israelites should live in temporary huts, in housing, and booths for the whole time they were in the wilderness when they came out of Egypt and then ended up wandering for 40 years. It was the emphasis was on that God made the Israelites live in booths and provided everything they needed in the wilderness. Their shoes didn't wear out. God provided manna for them to eat. He provided even quail when they demanded it, uh, when they demanded meat. God provided everything. So every year for eight days, Jewish people will set up booths and in the land of Israel today, they actually sleep in them. They live in them for a week and a day. Whereas here in the United States, for example, in Chicago, where I live, we set up booths in our neighborhoods but mostly eat in them because it's a little too chilly at night to sleep in a booth in Chicago at this time of year. So at least we stay in the booth and eat in them, and that's what it's for. It's to remember God's provision. The biblical period, if you look at uh, other passages, it enumerates all the sacrifices that are offered during the week. In fact, it comes to 70 sacrifices in the Old Testament when there was a tabernacle or when the Old Testament temple stood, they offered sacrifices, 70 of them. Why? The rabbis taught that it represented the 70 nations of the earth that Genesis talks about, that there were 70 nations. And the emphasis of Sukkot is it indicates the time when all the nations will know the Lord and therefore there are 70 sacrifices representing the 70 nations. Uh, Deuteronomy 16, verses 16 and 17 is another key passage. It talks about the three required festivals for the Israelites, of which one of them was Sukkot. Here's something that I think is really important about the observance of Sukkot, or booths. It says in verse 16 and 17, but if, uh, here we go, verse 16, uh, all your males are to appear three times a year before the Lord your God in the place he chooses. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Festival of Booths. And then it says, No one is to appear before the Lord empty-handed. Everyone must appear with a gift suited to his means, according to the blessing the Lord your God has given you. I think that's so significant because of booths, because it is a festival of thanksgiving, we need to appear before him with gifts, the Torah says. When they were to come to Jerusalem in the Old Testament days, they were to bring a gift in addition to their normal tithes and offerings. I think there's a great lesson there for us that if we are truly thankful to the Lord, when we appear before him, we gather to worship him, we will bring a gift to him. Not out of guilt, not out of responsibility only, but we will give a gift because we are so grateful. There should be a, a very important aspect. We don't believe in the Bible in guilt giving. 
but gratitude giving. If we're grateful, we give, and that's why God loves a cheerful giver. By the New Testament, by the New Testament times, two customs developed for Sukkot that are very important in the New Testament. The first custom that developed was the water libation. They would take a pitcher of water and pour it on the altar in the temple, and that would represent what would happen in the days of Messiah when the knowledge of the Lord would spread over the earth as the waters cover the seas. So there was the water libation. A second ceremony that developed in the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament and was prevalent in the New Testament was the torch ceremony. All the priests and Levites, particularly on the last day of the festival, would gather and there they would march with torches that would light up the Temple Mount. In fact, it was said that the Temple Mount was so lit up that the light could be seen way north in Galilee. And so the torch ceremony indicated what would happen when the Messiah came and he would bring his light to the whole world. In the New Testament, this is significant. In John chapter 7, verse 2, it says the Jewish festival of tabernacles or Sukkot was near. And then in verse John 7, 37, it says, on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit. And so this is crucial because what Jesus is saying is, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that will send the Spirit. And he, this is related to the great water libation. But he is saying instead that when the Messiah comes, he will send forth his spirit and rivers of living water will flow from your innermost being. I believe that's why it says afterwards that uh, the Messiah, is this the Messiah? They start wondering about it. Secondly, in John 8, this is what Jesus says after the torch ceremony. He says, I am the light of the world, verse 12. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is a crucial message that the Lord Jesus is the light of the world, the Messiah, the one who would come. There's also a prophetic perspective to Sukkot. In Zechariah 14, verses 9 and 16, it says that in the Messianic kingdom, when Messiah Jesus is reigning over the world from Jerusalem, all the Gentile nations will be required to come to Jerusalem to celebrate Sukkot. Why? It's the festival of dwellings. That's what booths means, dwellings. And the Messiah will be dwelling with us then. And so in the future, all the nations will come and celebrate with, with him in Jerusalem. It's this anticipation of the celebration of the Messianic kingdom in the future when Jesus comes back and he establishes his kingdom. That's why many people today will still celebrate Sukkot not because of a legalistic requirement, but many Christians will celebrate because they find this very meaningful, anticipating the day when Messiah comes. In fact, I think most of us really celebrate Thanksgiving every November, and since the original celebrants, the pilgrims, drew their celebration from the festival of Sukkot, every time we celebrate Thanksgiving, in a sense, we are celebrating Sukkot. 
how great it is to celebrate all of God's provision, both in the, the food that we eat, but also all his past protection and provision in the past. Well, uh, we're going to take a break, but before we do, uh, what I want to do is uh, remind you to give us a call with your uh, with your question about the Bible, God, or the spiritual life. The phone number, 877-548-3675. I'll be right back with more right here on Open Line with Michael Radelnik. So glad you're with me today. Before we go to the phones, I want to mention our current resource. Obviously, we need to read, we need to study, we need to meditate on God's Word. But at times, it can be a challenge for us to understand. That's why Pastor Colin Smith wrote 10 Keys for Unlocking the Bible, a small book that gives the big picture of how to read the Bible. It can unlock a deeper understanding of the scriptures as we read it, and we'll get more out of our time in the Word. It's a simple and helpful guide that will make our Bible reading much more understandable and accessible to us. It's yours free when you give a gift of any size to Open Line. All you have to do is give a gift. We want to say thank you for your generosity and send you 10 keys for unlocking the Bible. If you'd like to give a gift, and receive the 10 keys for unlocking the Bible, just call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. And remember, when you give, be sure to ask for 10 keys for unlocking the Bible. We're going to uh, go to the phones right now. And uh, our very first caller is... Colin in Greensboro, Georgia, listening on WPMA. Welcome to Open Line, Colin. How can I help you? Hello. How you doing? I'm good. Yes, I'd like to ask, was Abiathar related to Zadok? And if they were both uh, the sons of Eli, did Zadok uh, avoid the curse? Uh, wait, wait, wait. Of, what? Yeah. What? Abiathar. <laughs> Yeah. What what are we talking about here? Uh, the the sons of Eli? No. no, not not his direct sons, but you know his Abiathar and Zadok were both priests out of Eli's line. I think they're sons of descent of Phineas, Eli's son. Mm-hmm. So were they related? So tell me, tell me not- you know what? I'm 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 not off the top of my head. I don't remember the genealogies here. Uh, but uh, why do you want to know yeah. this? Because Eli got the curse on his descendants, but Zadok, according to Ezekiel 48.11, is blessed. But according to 1 Kings, Abiathar had to be removed because of the curse on Eli. The one that Zadok uh, avoided the curse on Eli. Uh, you know, I have to just confess to you, this is not something that's at the frontal lobe right now. So... Uh, here's what I'm going to just suggest to you, Colin. Let's uh, listen in next week, and I'll talk to you about the lines of Eli. Okay, that's believe, something I'm going to. I'm going to have to. Believe, I'm going to have to take some time to uh, read up on that. Okay, thanks so much for your call. But listen next week, and I'll talk about this. 
Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for that. <laughs> Boy, I thought that I keep my my frontal lobe open on a lot of things. That one is not right there. Uh, we're going to talk to Brad in West Palm Beach, Florida, listening on WRMB. Welcome to Open Line, Brad. How can I help you? Good morning, Dr. Rydalnik. Hi. Beautiful day here in South Florida. I hope it's good weather where you are. Thank you. Yes, yeah, Chicago. It's autumn. It's the best season that we have. <laughs> well, God calls some of us to warmer temperatures. Yeah, right. <laughs> My question is, why in Genesis is there a plurality with God? For example, Genesis eleven seven, the Tower of Babel. My NIV says, let us, let us go down and confuse their language. And, mm-hmm. and yet in Genesis 2, um, God's talking about creating woman, and he said, I, I will make a man, or I will make a helper suitable for mm-hmm. him. So I'm just wondering well, about... Well, in, one in, case, Genesis, in Genesis 1.24, though, it says, let us make man or humanity is really what that means, in our image and according to our likeness. It, that's what it says in Genesis one twenty six, uh, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. So uh, it's not 100% consistent there. Uh so uh, wh- I'm just not sure what you're getting at. Do, do you think that there has to d- be some sort of plurality with God every time he speaks? Well, I guess I was first uh, saw it just with the Tower of Babel and, and the word us. You know, like, is that the Holy Spirit that's going to go down with God and confuse the language? And then with the creating of woman, it seemed to be more God well, no, but but, but you, you skipped Genesis 1. So what, what do you think of that? Well, yeah, I just don't know why in one case it's singular and the other it's it's plural. Okay, uh, that now I understand your question. Okay, uh, in Genesis one twenty six, there's a lot of reasons that people give for the plurality, where it says, "Let us make humanity in our image and according to our likeness." Where there's obviously a plurality, it seems to me that part of God's image is. Plurality in oneness. Uh, The idea is that there seems, and the reason I say that uh, is he made them male. There's just this one essence of humanity, right? This he made humanity. He made uh, man in his own image, but he made them male and female. So there's plurality in the unity of of humanity. Do you see that? There's male and female, plurality, and there's yet, uh, there's just one essence of humanity. So there's plurality in that oneness in the same way God, that's part of God's image, uh, that God is one, and yet there's plurality. He's obviously later on, as we read more and more scripture, we see that there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's just one essence of God. There's only one God, and yet there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons. So there's plurality in the oneness. I don't think Genesis 1 is as detailed as that, but it does indicate that there is plurality in his oneness. Uh, and that's what we see later on in Genesis 11, 
And yet when he says he's going to make a woman, uh, I will make a helper as his compliment, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't do it uniformly. It doesn't always indicate plurality in his oneness. Sometimes it just emphasizes his oneness, and so it uses the first person uh, singular. That's that's the only difference. It's because both are acceptable when speaking of God. He is only one God, so he can speak in the first person singular. Or because there is plurality in his oneness, he can use the first person plural. They're both true. Okay. Okay, thank you. Okay, good. Thanks so much for your call. Uh, I think that is remarkable, though, in the Old Testament that there is plurality in God's oneness, that he really is. Uh, He is one, but there's something mysterious about God uh, that he is, it kind of begins to be revealed in the Old Testament and finally is fully revealed in the New. So... Okay, we're going to talk to CJ in Grand Rapids, Michigan, listening on WGNB. Welcome to Open Line, CJ. How can I help you? Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How can I help you? Um, so my question is, how are we able to tell the difference while we read Scripture? Um, which promises of God are for us and which are specifically for the Jewish people? Uh, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I'll use it as a as an example. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Let's go to Jeremiah twenty nine eleven and look at it. Uh, uh, the best way to understand is to look at the context and to determine mm-hmm. who is being addressed. And if you look at Gen- Genesis, uh, Jeremiah twenty nine, verse ten, which is the context. For this is what the Lord says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Well, uh, obviously, who is the one that was being sent to captivity for 70 years? Do you think? Do you have any? That kinda... would be the Jewish people. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> that's it's pretty easy to determine, don't you think? Uh, on, on that one, yes, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I think uh, that's the uh, that's the very very good uh, lesson that we have. We can look at things in context, and when we look at them in context, it will reveal who they are directed to. And this is really crucial for us, I think, just reading things in context. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, for every follower of Jesus, the whole Bible is our Bible. It's not like we say, oh, God doesn't have good plans for us. But I bet in, in the New Testament there's something similar. It says in Romans 8, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, right? Romans eight twenty eight. That's mm. very similar to yeah. this promise. And then the other thing that believers can say, there's a principle that underlies what this is saying. Just as God has a chosen people, a national people, the people of Israel, and he has this promise for them, he's going to send them into captivity for 70 years, but he's got a good plan, he's going to bring them back. I have to ask myself, what was his purpose in sending Israel into captivity for 70 years? And that was to discipline them, to correct them in love, Mm -hmm. right? 
And uh, yeah. the Bible teaches in Hebrews chapter uh, 12 that God corrects his followers in love as well. He disciplines us as a father disciplines his children lovingly. And so there's a great lesson here that when God disciplines us, the promise we have is always for our good and he has good plans for us, not for disaster, but he wants to give us a future and a hope. Isn't that true? So I Amen. can apply this I can apply this principle that when facing discipline, I can be confident that God has a good plan for you, for me, uh, that he's going to give us a future and a hope, just as he did for the people of Israel. doesn't mean that that promise doesn't apply to me. It just directly relates to Israel, but it does apply to me as a follower of Jesus. How about to you? What do you think? Um, I, yeah, I, I agree. I just, yeah. uh, you know, I hear a lot of people, um, they use that, that scripture in specific, you know, when, when they're going through very trying times and, yeah. and I always just, just kind of wonder that as, as yeah. I study, you know, and I yeah. read and I'm looking for a word from the Lord myself, you know? Yeah. Well, I think there's a really good principle that we can learn is just as God loves his chosen people, Israel, and has all sorts of great promises for them, those of us who know Messiah, we're chosen before the foundation of the world, and many of those principles apply to us. They're not directly for us, but they apply to us. Give us a call, the phone number, 877-548-3675. This is Open Line with Michael Rydelnik. Trisha's coming with the mailbag in just a moment. My name is Michael Rydelnik. Trisha McMillan's coming in here with the FEBC mailbag. I'm so grateful that Far Eastern Broadcasting Company is partnering with Moody Radio to bring you Open Line. You can get a deeper perspective on how the gospel is advancing in the world's most unreached countries through the weekly podcast called Until All Have Heard. It's with Ed Cannon, the president of FEBC. All the details for this and much more about FEBC's extensive outreach can be found at febc.org. That's febc.org. Well, Tricia, I'm so glad that we're part of the same team here. Uh, I'm glad you're here. And uh, I was wondering about uh, teammates there. Who's with you today? Uh, it's kind of fun. We have Who's, a whole bunch. We've got Bob in here. We've got Courtney. We've got Josie. Anthony's here. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it takes a lot to get this program running. You know, yeah. I need all the help I can get. <laughs> and uh, I appreciate it so much. You know, there's a, a, a big team there, and I'm grateful for every one of them. And also there's a, a wider team. I, I bet you know about that. Those are our kitchen table partners. And... Uh, those are listeners who commit to give monthly to Open Line so we can be on the air answering listener questions weekly. And I so appreciate those, those partners. Their partnership keeps us on the air. And I hope if you're listening and Open Line has been an encouragement to you, that you might consider becoming a kitchen table partner too. If you do, I'll send you a special audio Bible study every other week prepared exclusively for our kitchen table partners. Become a kitchen table partner today 
All you have to do is call 888-644-7122, or you can sign up online at openlineradio.org. Hey, Trisha, someone asked me recently, uh, is there a minimum to become a kitchen table partner? And of course there isn't. No. No. Uh, I, every every little bit helps. Yeah, yeah. We're grateful for anyone that will commit to that that monthly gift. You know, whatever it is that you can afford, we appreciate it. But someone asked me how much I think it should be, and I thought, well, it's because I love books so much, and I spend so much of my salary on buying books that I said I think I would do thirty dollars a month. And you know why that is? It's because. That opens up the Moody Publishers catalog for all our kitchen table partners who are thirty dollars a month or more. They can get any book in the in the catalog for fifty percent off. Isn't that true? It I is think true. It is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fifty percent yeah. off. So that includes the Moody Bible Commentary. Yeah. That includes the Bibles. That includes other Bible the resources. Ham- the, Moody the Moody Handbook, Handbook of Messianic, Messianic Prophecy. Prophecy. Yeah. Yeah. Fifty most yeah. important Bible questions. <laughs> yeah. Basically also, anything. Anything yeah. in the Moody Publishers. There's um, Bible catalog. dictionaries and Bible handbooks and uh, just great, great materials in there. Uh, wonderful books. And so that's so when people ask me, what, what would I suggest? That's what I suggest. Not because uh, I don't appreciate every gift, but because that's, that's how I would hit the publisher's catalog. And uh, sometimes Eva said, why don't we just send our check to publishers? every month and not bother taking it into our checking account because we buy so many books. So <laughs> so there we go. Well, listen, let's, let's get to some questions here. All right. Our first question is from Alfredia in Ohio, listens to WCRF, wants to know if the phrase son of God is a title. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, clearly it is a title. Uh, it's rooted in Scripture, uh, Psalm 2, where it talks about the Messiah. He's called the Son. He's called that twice in 2.7. You are my Son, this day I have begotten you. And then also in 2.12, uh, do homage, worship the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the, in the way. How blessed are all who take refuge in him, in the Son. So that's the root of it. The idea of the Son of God in Psalm 2. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the, the title, Son of God, it reflects the eternal relationship in the Godhead between the Father and the Son and the, the Holy Spirit, Father and Son. And then, uh, you know, people often ask, well, what does that mean? Well, obviously there's an aspect of the incarnation because uh, what does the angel Gabriel say to Mary? Uh, that... Uh, the thing that 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 baby inside of you uh, who is the work a miraculous incarnation he shall be called the son of god so there's a sense of the incarnation there but also i think there's something more significant about it uh just think about this the sons of thunder do, do you remember them mm-hmm. in the james, james and, and john. john yeah you know i often think about them as being kind of explosive Loud, boisterous, you know. Uh, I I often joke about how they probably wore leather tunics had a big lightning bolt on the back, and it said <laughs> "Sons of Thunder." Uh, and as they got, you know, they got on their camels, <laughs> but uh, they 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 were they were pretty disruptive. 
and but that sons of didn't mean they were descended had some sort of physical descent from thunder it meant they epitomized they expressed themselves as thunder uh it says in acts 5 that there was this uh very generous gracious man named joseph but everyone called him barnabas son of encouragement didn't mean he physically descended from encouragement it means that he epitomized encouragement uh and in the same way, when we talk about the Son of God, it doesn't mean that the Lord Jesus somehow descended, that he was a created being. He's eternal. He's eternally God. But he fully epitomized who God is. Uh, that's why he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because he is, he says, I and the Father are one. He fully uh, epitomizes who God is. No man has seen God at any time, except if you've seen the Son, you've seen God. Uh, that's it. Is that why then he also was called Son of Man, because he was fully God and fully man? Yeah, I think so. But uh, the Son of Man also has a, a an aspect of deity as well, because in Daniel 7 is where it's rooted. It says that one like a Son of Man appeared before the Ancient of Days. There were thrones set up, one for the Ancient of Days, one for the one who is like a son of man, who would receive fully all authority over all the kingdoms of the world in Daniel 7. And so what that means, he looks like a fully human being, but he's also fully God. It's a, a deity figure who is fully God. So when the Lord Jesus was using the term son of man, he was talking about being uh, the son of man or the fully, fully God man. That's what it means. Fully okay. God, fully man. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, sort of related in the sun's aspect, Carla in Ohio listens to WCRF and says, I also love the Moody Radio app, which is where she listens when she misses listening live on Saturday mornings. I'm so thankful for your ministry. Yeah. Um, Which, if you're interested, you can download that for free. Uh, The Mm -hmm. Moody Radio app, listen to us and other of our talk programs. You can listen to the music stations, the local stations, lots of the podcasts, lots of yeah, things lots are of there. Stuff, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Carla wants to know, were the sons of Alphaeus, Matthew and James, um, who were apostles, were they brothers? And then also, why does Jesus proclaim that he's the son of man, but then tell people not to say who he was? Not to tell well, people. Uh, Likely, they, the sons of Alphaeus, yes, they were brothers, uh, as far as I can tell. Okay. Uh, but the, the, the bigger question there is the, what people call the Messianic secret. And uh, the, uh, the question, I think, you know, it's usually after a miracle that he says, don't tell anyone. Mm-hmm. But in, in my opinion... I think Matthew 16 gives us a better clue as to what's going on. Do you remember when Peter has his great confession? You are the son of the living God. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Mm-hmm. And because of that, uh, he says, uh, uh, you know, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, Peter. So that's Peter's uh, uh, great, great confession, right? Mm-hmm. And then he says, uh, I think that it's really cool he says he gave the disciples orders not to tell anyone who he was that he was the messiah it says that right there after a great confession yeah this is matthew 16 20 yeah and then what follows 
is the Lord Jesus begins to talk about going to Jerusalem to suffer and die, be raised on the third day. And Peter now goes to his great confusion. He says, oh, Lord, this will never happen to you. And he turned to him and said, get behind me. And he knew this idea that Messiah wouldn't have to die is from Satan. You're an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. You want to just have a kingdom. You don't necessarily want to have a spiritual transformation that's required. You don't want the atonement to be made for you. And so uh, it seems to me that that's why there was the messianic secret, because too often people, when they realize that Jesus is the Messiah through his miracles or through this confession, what's going to happen? They don't want to have a Messiah who will suffer and die and be raised again. What they want, then, will be a king who will come and kick out the Romans and establish a kingdom. And so as a result, the Lord Jesus tried to tamp down the political aspirations of people by telling them not to go about talking about these things. That's the messianic secret. So there there you have that. I think we better take a break. All right. Sounds good. Don't you think? I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Looking at, look at the clock. We're going to take a break here. When we come back, there'll be more of your calls right here on Open Line. That was Tricia McMillan, producer of Open Line. I'm Michael Rydelnik. You can always call us 877-548-3675, or you can go to openlineradio.org and click on the link there and ask Michael a question and send your question that way. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back to Open Line. My name is Michael Rydelnik. I'm so glad you're listening in today. In Romans 10.1, Paul said his heart's desire, and listen to this, his prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. The apostle prayed for the people of Israel. That's a prayer we too often neglect, and that's why Chosen People Ministries' new calendar, their annual calendar they do, the Jewish art calendar, it's a great reminder to pray for Israel. This year's calendar has beautiful pictures of the land of Israel, but also prayer prompts to pray for the Jewish people. You know, the Jewish New Year begins in September, and so this calendar begins in September, but then continues all the way through December, and each month there are prayer prompts for you to remember to pray for Israel, just as the Apostle Paul did. If you'd like a copy of the Chosen People Ministries Jewish Art Calendar, all you have to do is go to the Open Line website, openlineradio.org, scroll down, and you'll see a link that says a free gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that, and you'll be taken to a page where you can sign up for your free copy of the 2023 Jewish Art Calendar. Now's a good time to call 877-548-3675. We're going to speak with Marlena listening in Cleveland, Ohio on WCRF. Welcome to Open Line, Marlena. How can I help you? Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask you a question, Michael. Uh, I had the privilege of leading a gal to Christ last Thursday, and she got baptized then on Sunday. I know. It was the most exciting thing. 55 years old, and she said that she had been running from God for years, and finally she feels at home. Very exciting. Praise God. Yes. her, Her concern was... Will she recognize her loved ones when she gets to heaven? And I didn't know of any scripture one way or the other to answer that question, so I thought what better person to ask than you? Well, 
they're probably better persons, but okay, <laughs> I'll do my best to answer. Uh, I do think it's interesting that after both, and it's a parable. I recognize that the parable of Lazarus and the rich man is a parable, so it's not an actual event, but parables are always mm -hmm. based on real things, right? So real life right. uh, ways, uh, ways of, of going about it. So for example, when a sower goes out to seed, there really are sowers, and they do go out to sow seed, right? Uh, they, there really were publicans, you know, or tax gatherers and Pharisees. The, 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 everything that you read in parables are real life. So when it talks about uh, Lazarus dying and the rich man dying, and the, even though they're in different places, the rich man recognizes Lazarus. That tells me in the afterlife, we will recognize those that have died that are there. So that's one aspect of it. Then when it talks about the return of the Lord at the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, it talks about the return this way. It says uh, that those who sleep, those who have died, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus and we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend, and the dead in the Messiah in Christ will rise, and we will be caught up together with them in the clouds. It sounds to me like there's at the resurrection of the dead of, in the body of Christ, and those of us who are alive at that time and are translated there's going to be a great reunion in the air. I can't imagine that at that time that we won't be able to know who we are. It just looks to me right. like there's going to be a great reunion at that time, and it's going to be a great celebration. So for those reasons, I do think that we will recognize and know. And by the way, it's not just that uh, I, people ask me, how will we know who everyone is? Because Lazarus is being comforted by Abraham. He's in Abraham's you know, Abraham's holding him there and, and comforting him, right? Uh, uh, in fact, I think someone just last week asked me, how will we know? And I said, name tags. But I don't know if that's true. I, I, just, <laughs> I, just, uh, I just know we'll be able to recognize one another at that time, and it's going to be a great reunion, okay? Boy, what a, a message of hope. Thank you yeah. so much. God bless you. You too. Okay, Thanks so much for day. calling. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, we're going to go back to the phone now. And uh, TJ, TJ in Cleveland, I think is what it says. Am I reading this right, Trish? Cincinnati, Ohio. There we go. Uh, hey, TJ, how can I help you today? Listen to Donald Cole for many years. So I, you know, oh, did you really? That was, yes. Wow. Well, you sound way uh -huh. too young for that. Uh, there we go. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but uh, my question is, um, one that I have been corrected in some small groups and I'm hearing ministers uh, say that God is uh, male and female and I, when I hear that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit I've always considered God as being male and and his son um jesus is a man and mm -hmm. i'm being uh told otherwise so i wondered what you had to say about um well 
the, let's start with what is female. Yeah, let's start with uh, what is male or female. It is a physical property, is it not? It's, okay. It's it has to do with whether a person is physically male or physically female. It's biological, even though culture tells us it's not. We know that it's a biologic issue, is it not? So yes. Yeah. Now God is a spirit. That's what Jesus says in John four. Uh, God is a spirit, uh, and He. Uh, must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And if God is a spirit, that means he doesn't have any biological features. So okay. it's not it's not that he's male and female. He is neither male nor female. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's Wayne Grudem who mentions that in a theology book I once read, and I think he's really right about that. However, I want to be really clear about something here. Uh God reveals himself as father and son. He uses male terminology. He presents himself uh, as male. Uh, when God became incarnate, he became incarnate as a male. And because God presents himself as father from whom every family on earth gets their name, I think it is only appropriate for us to view to in, in our finite minds to understand him as our father. So though I know technically speaking, the spirit of, you know, as the Holy Spirit is neither male nor female, sometimes his uh, pronouns are neuter in Greek, and sometimes the pronouns that are used for the Holy Spirit are male, because God presents himself as male to our finite minds, I think it's utterly fine for us to think of him that way. I want to be really clear about that. Uh, I don't think... Uh, and especially the Lord Jesus. Now God is incarnate as a male, God the Son. So that's that's why I think uh, God accommodates our our minds, and that's how we should think of Him. Okay, does that help? Yes. Thank yeah. you so okay. much. Good. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. That's the first hour. Keep listening. There's a second hour of open line on most of these stations. If your station doesn't carry it, check out the Moody Radio app or listen online. And during the break, check out our webpage openlineradio.org that page has all sorts of things that you're looking for like our current resource so how to become a kitchen table partner there's a lot more open line coming up in just a moment second hour straight ahead open line with dr michael radelnik is a production of moody radio a ministry of moody bible institute